What influence can your parents have in your life? Are your experiences predetermined by their attitude to life, which engrosses you from an early age and moulds how you experience all of life's events? Will this encompassing mould set you on a path before your life has begun? Or are you able to forge your own path, your own ideals and your own world vision? It is the life of a Dublin man which answers these questions for us. This is his story. In Dublin, in 1920, during the Irish War of Independence and just before the Irish Civil War, a man was born. His name, Brendan Finucane. His father, Thomas, was an Irish rebel and a veteran of the 1916 Rising, based in Boland's Mill under the leadership of Eamon de Valera. Thomas's vision of the world was painted from an early age by de Valera. He was his maths teacher in school and they fought side by side during the failed rebellion. Fighting for Ireland was by no means a family tradition. Thomas's own father, Brendan's grandfather, was a British Army veteran, having fought and been widely commended for his role fighting for the British Crown in India and Pakistan. Thomas, however, opted not to fight for the British, but against them, in order to liberate his home from oppression. After the rebellion, de Valera went on to fight in the Irish War of Independence and be a key figure in the Irish Civil War. Thomas's life took a different route. He met a woman called Florence. Florence was an Englishwoman who loved adventure. Before they met, she had spent a few years travelling across Canada as she had heard stories of its vast untravelled beauty and wanted to see it firsthand. The two met in Dublin as Florence had stopped there to explore Ireland on her return to England. Given their vastly different formative years and opposing views on Florence's home, the early days of their relationship was confusing for them to grasp. As a form of truce, when they decided to marry, Thomas agreed to retire from his political activism and Florence converted to Catholicism. Both acts were frowned upon by their respective backgrounds. The year after they married, Brendan was born into the home that they shared in Drumcondra on the city's north side. Here, a largely Catholic population lived. Before his birth, they had lived in Rathmines, on the south side of the city, but they were no longer welcome here due to them not being from a wealthy Protestant background, and giving Thomas's political views, he was definitely not welcome. To put the political views of the Aries in Dublin into context, during the 1916 Rising, as the British soldiers marched up to slaughter the fighting rebels, they were cheered on and thanked by the Dublin Southsiders. Many of those in the Catholic Northside slums prayed their brave sons fighting under the guidance of Thomas Clark, James Connolly and Podrick Pierce would make it home. When Brendan was still a boy, he and his mother were returning home from a local shop when they were caught in the crossfires between Irish rebels and the Black and Tans. To survive the gunfire, his mother threw the young boy in the ground and lay on top of him. Seeing what was happening, the rebels moved towards where they lay and fought back the Black and Tans until they could get close enough that one of them grabbed the mother and child and pulled them behind the lines for protection until they could run home. Brendan had two brothers and two sisters. Given their parents' backgrounds, the house was very divided on religious and political views. His mother wanted the children to seek adventure and live life learning from consequences rather than in fear of them. His father, however, was a strict Catholic and desperately opposed to the consumption of alcohol. When he was just 12, Brendan's parents took him to an air show in Baldonnell. 
Here, he was wowed by the fighter planes. He loved how they looped through the air and was massively impressed by the pilots controlling them. His mother paid for him to go up in one for a 10 minute spin. When they landed back down, he ran and grabbed her hand tightly and said, that, that is what I want to do. Thomas, Brendan's father, on a trip to London for work, having been promoted to company director over the years, spotted an opportunity to set up an office in the West End of London, and in 1936, he moved the whole family over. Brendan excelled in the English school system and completed school as a scholar of Cardinal Vaughan's Memorial School, a Catholic school in Richmond. His grades got him a job in an office as an accountant. He could not have thought of a more dull thing to do with his life than work in an office. In 1937, Brendan heard the British Flying Forces, the RAF, were offering short-term service commissions to those from the lower classes who met certain academic standards. Brendan, being Irish, met the lower class standard by default and his academic record stood for itself. He faced a difficult conversation with his Republican father. How could he ask him to support him, join the British Army, the army he had fought so hard to rid from his home? As they sat to talk, Thomas said to his son that it was okay. He knew that his dream was to fly planes, and this was his only option. He thought the army would give his son a direction that he lacked in his own youth. He thought Brendan might just train with the RAF, gain his license to fly a plane, and fly private cargo planes, or something similar, rather than actually have to go and fight for the Crown. The following year, in 1938, Brendan turned 17 and had reached the age limit to join. This year, however, was tough for the Finucans, as Thomas had lost his job since Brendan's dream started to become a reality. He wasn't going to let his own downturn affect his son's goals. He and Florence cashed in their insurance policies and faced a very uncertain financial future in order to liberate their son's dreams and give him an opportunity. Within days of joining the training scheme, Brendan had taken to the skies. He found the flying tough, experiencing a number of mishaps. He crashed into hedges, burst tires on landing, and bounced the nodes of the plane off the runway in a failed landing. Normally, these events would remove you from the scheme, but Brendan's instructors were amazed by his bravery and drive. Each time he had a mishap, he would refuse to get out of the plane until he was allowed to go at it again and get it right. On one occasion, he ripped his landing gear clean off the bottom of his plane trying to land, but managed to get the aircraft over a field and guide himself to safety. He was far behind his classmates, who had fathers and uncles who had flown before that they could consult for advice. He was out there on his own to figure it out for himself. His instructor noted, Finucane's issue is he has an awful habit of trying to manipulate the aircraft to do what he wanted to do, rather than coax it to do so. When the RAF thought he might make a good gunner from a plane, Brendan refused the training. He wanted to fly solo. By 1938, Brendan had gained enough flying hours to become one of just 45 trainees to graduate to the grade known as the average pilot. He went to Scotland for the advanced training and really struggled with the more powerful planes. Here, he was renamed by the other pilots as Paddy due to being Irish. 
No one ever referred to him by his real name, and he never corrected anyone. He wanted people to know he was a proud Irishman. Landing continued to be his issue, with one instructor noting, the ground was never quite where Paddy expected it to be. When the trainees were being reviewed by their instructors, it was again Paddy's bravery and determination that kept him on the programme. He continued to gain enough hours to move up the ranks. He was graduating at the bottom of each class, but graduating all the same. In August, on his first year of training, he crashed an expensive plane on a transport flight. He was assumed dead by all those who looked on. They were shocked to see Paddy walk from the wreck with just a cut in his thumb. In September 1939, midway through his training, Paddy was working, as his father had hoped, as a courier pilot, bringing engineers and supplies to the various bases. He was not flying solo, however, as his landing could not be trusted with cargo. Midway through the month, Germany invaded Poland. World War II had begun. Brendan, not being a trusted fighter pilot, continued to work as a courier until May 1940. It was then Germany had attacked the Netherlands and Belgium, which fell quickly. In June, France fell. Britain would be next and an influx of pilots were needed. Paddy faced with another difficult conversation with his father, as he was now called up to fight for the British Army. This wasn't something either of them had seen as a possibility. During World War II, as a result of having been through a war of independence and a civil war, Ireland remained neutral. There are a number of other reasons for this. England was Ireland's old enemy, and given the recent scars on the Irish psyche, some found it hard to support them. They also didn't want to support the Germans, given they were now the oppressor attacking small nations like Ireland. The Irish government were in fact offered the remaining six counties of the north if they chose to fight on the British side, creating an independent United Ireland for the first time. They rejected this. The neutrality did not make them immune from the war. Ireland was bombed on seven occasions during World War II. Belfast, Dublin, Wexford, Wicklow, Louth and Meath all had German bombs fall on their towns and villages. The worst being the bombing of North Strand in Dublin in May 1941, when four German bombs were dropped, killing 28 people. The President's house, Oris and Uchtaron, also took heavy damage. The effects of this can still be seen today, as a number of Irish coastlines are marked with lime with large words that say ERA. This was done to ensure they were not hit if the Germans had mistaken Ireland for England. It was effectively a large sign which was asking the German planes to stay away. Throughout Ireland, there are a number of Allied and Nazi pilots which crashed on the island. Both were treated equally and fairly and kept in makeshift prisoner of war camps with very loose security. They were often fed and cared for by the locals until they were released after the war. Some villages and towns even held parties and dances for the pilots in order to give them something to do and something to look forward to. Over 120,000 Irish people from both the Republic and the North fought in the British Army in World War II. 
70,000 from the Republic, 50,000 from the North. Each individual soldier had different motives for doing so. A further 5,000 Irish soldiers fought on the German side. Whilst Ireland's leader, Eamon de Valera, Brendan's father's old mentor, was an anti-British Republican, he detested what was happening to the Jewish people during the war. Because of his support of Irish Jews during the war, especially for those with Irish passports living in Europe taken to concentration camps, in 1966, near Nazareth, the State of Israel named a forest after the former Irish leader. These are all stories for a different day. Thomas met with his son to discuss the issue that he now faced. It wasn't a long conversation. Thomas told his son, I fought so small nations might be free. You will do the same. Paddy was off to war. In July of 1940, with no experience in an active war aircraft, Paddy was posted to the number 65 squadron. Knowing he was heading for the Battle of Britain, Paddy would loiter near the Spitfire planes in the hope of taking any available ones up as often as he could to get experience in them. He had never properly flown and shot at the same time up until this point and he was just days from a fierce battle. On July 25th, at 8.45, Paddy set into a Spitfire, destined to meet the Germans in the skies. The plane had been used in the war since April and was worn. It had patched holes and leaked fuel into the cockpit. Determined to fly and fight solo, Brendan told no one. When he started his engine, he found he had no radio. As the plane raised into the sky with his squad, the other members of his team were shocked as they saw the Irishman push the front of the convoy. On this occasion, all they were chasing were scouting planes, which had vanished by the time the squad arrived. Brendan landed successfully in Rochford. For the next few days, he did not take to the skies, possibly as a result of not reporting the condition of his aircraft before his first flight. On August 12th, he took off from his base to head out to the English Channel to intercept a German raid. When his squad approached, Paddy noticed there was a blind spot above the Germans and he raised high above them and sat in their blind spots. From here, he launched towards them and took down three of their planes. The nine which remained were dealt with by the rest of his squad. This act of bravery and initiative was witnessed by the high-ranking Sergeant Orchard. He landed the plane just before noon, and whilst refuelling beside his friend, Geoffrey Quill, also a novice at the time, the base was attacked by low-swooping German planes. Paddy turned to Geoffrey and shouted to get into his plane. The two men were the only two Spitfires which successfully made it into the air. Once there, the two men took on the German fleet by themselves, taking them all out of the sky. Over the next two weeks, Paddy was involved in a number of fierce battles over the English Channel. By September, the man who had scraped his way into the RAF was promoted to flying officer. 
A squadron report was put in recommending his promotion. It's dated. I have great hopes of this officer. He is keen and intelligent and shows likelihood of becoming a very effective leader. He has been trained as a leader and is learning quickly. During a German night raid over Southampton, Paddy had been in a pub near Bournemouth with a friend when he saw the German planes coming over the Isle of Wight. Knowing they had colleagues in Southampton, they rushed by car as quickly as they could to help those being bombed in the city. When they arrived and saw the destruction, Paddy said to his colleagues in his thick Dublin accent, knowing once England would fall, Ireland would be next. Until this war is won, we must shoot down every jerry from the sky. Seeing what the bombs being dropped could do, Paddy found a heightened sense as to what he was fighting for. By 1941, most of Paddy's time was spent patrolling the skies in the English Channel. The Germans were mostly attacking under the cover of night and it was his job to scout for them. He is credited as having stopped a large number of bombing planes crossing the channel. On January 19th, he met one of the more frightening moments of his war experience. As he was returning to base after a patrol, he spotted two German planes hiding in the glare of the sun. He had to perform a quick swerve to dodge their advances but was chased for many miles, ducking and diving away from the bullets coming from behind. They shot his fuel tank and the guns off the wing of his plane. Remarkably, with only one gun still attached to his own aircraft and hemorrhaging fuel, he managed to get back behind the Germans, take them both down and land safely. Noting how he was now becoming an excellent fighter pilot, Paddy was taken off patrol by his superior officers and was sent across the channel to fight in France. Here, he was involved in a number of bomb droppings on German bases. He faced heavy gunfire, but his remarkable bravery and drive allowed him to get closer than any of the other pilots. He managed to get right above the German guns, fighting them off. His continued displays of bravery and skill led him to be promoted over time to commander of his own squad, the 452 Squadron. As the squad took to the skies for their first battle, the other men were met with an act of disobedience by Paddy. He had vandalised his plane. He hadn't done any damage to it. For what they saw as he moved from the back to the front of the squad was he had removed the Union Jack from his plane and on the side of his cockpit he had painted a large shamrock, a symbol for Ireland. He wanted his men to know they were fighting for what he was fighting for. The freedom of small countries, the freedom for his country. Under Paddy's leadership, they became known as one of the best squads in the war on both sides, and he was known as one of the most important figures in the Allies' efforts against the Nazi armies. In February 1942, the year he was due to graduate from the training scheme had the war not started. His team flew over Dunkirk and Paddy was met with tremendous pain. The German guns had pierced his cockpit and he had eight bullets lodged in his thigh. Paddy 
had a strict rule that there was to be radio silence whilst attacking, particularly if he had an issue so the Germans wouldn't be able to identify who was leading the troop or who they had hit. Paddy flew on to complete his mission, losing a lot of blood along the way. He remained out of action until March 13th, when he insisted he was well enough to return to the battle. He returned as if he had never been wounded, again winning countless battles and guiding thousands of soldiers to safety under his gunfire. He was promoted to the very top levels of the fighting members at the RAF and was praised across the free world for what he was doing to fight back the Germans. He was noted as having changed aviation formations forever, as he always looked for new ways to hide in the sky and form better attacking formations. He received a large number of high honours for his various battle wins. On July 15th, as one of the key figures in the war, he led a very ambitious mission into France. A German camp had been spotted with a massive platoon base there. If Paddy and his men could take them out, then the Allies would be in a great position not just to advance through France, but to push the Germans back altogether. He was seen as the only man who could lead such a mission. As they approached the beaches of France, they spotted German machine guns set up to take out planes. Keeping Paddy's rule of radio silence, he hand gestured to his squad to spread out. He pushed on ahead in order to be a diversion whilst his squad manoeuvred themselves. When they got into position, Paddy noticed his engine had lost its kick. He turned to his left, to his friend Alan Butch Aikman, his second in command, who was signalling to him that his radiator had been hit and large pummels of smoke were coming out of the back of Paddy's plane. Paddy put his finger to his lips as if to say, shh, we can't let them know. Paddy's plane started to drop slowly from the sky. He continued to signal to his men to keep moving forward. Then, as he came towards the ocean, he pulled back his cockpit's canopy, removed his helmet and radioed his friend, Alan Butch. All he said was, This is it, Butch, as he placed his hand on his beloved shamrock. He hit the water with what was reported to be his best ever landing. Considering how it was his only weakness as a pilot, his squad were amazed. Then came a white crashing wave and he disappeared under the water with his plane. He was never seen again. He was just 21 years old. After his death, over 2,500 people attended his memorial service at Westminster Cathedral and a rose was planted in his honour at the Baldonnell Aerodrome in Dublin, the place where he first gained a love of flight. His name as Paddy Finucane is also printed on a plaque in Runnymede, the National Memorial Centre for the RAF. He is also listed as one of the heroes of the Battle of Britain in the memorial in London. 
the English town of Bushy has a street named after him. Today's music was written, performed and produced by Ryan O'Halloran. We the Irish is an Ireland Loves production. If you enjoyed this episode and want to help us continue to create more, you can buy us a coffee at www.buymeacoffee.com slash we the Irish. Or in a Sanam Dum, Gurv Magut, Slonanish.